So hello and welcome to Right Wing Dharma Squad's episode 3. Sorry for the delay, we had some very nasty tech issues, but they seem to be mostly resolved for now. Uh, I am Dharma Kirti, joined with... Uh, you all guys want to introduce yourselves? Hello, Storm King here. Hi, I'm Aura. And yeah, so today we were thinking to talk about sacred spaces because we had this situation with Notre Dame burning down and, and it was it's clearly an important um it's clearly an, an just an extremely important site for christians and even for many non-christians in some way I, I think to my mind to my way of thinking part of um what's interesting there's an interesting question about the way in which we relate to spaces or sites as being sacred um and what that means I don't actually ultimately believe that there's such a thing as like a purely secular person. You're going to have a god or, or some kind of thing that you worship no matter what. Um, so even, you know, the, the, what's interesting to me in the background about the um, when people talking, you know, the, these idiots talking about making it a secular temple to humanism or whatever, which I think they also did after the French Revolution for some time. Um, I mean, it just shows you how the ways in which people relate to these things are... Um, still governed by a certain kind of religious sentiment but before we're getting into that i was just i was curious how did y'all um feel about that or, or, or what was your reaction i'll say that um unfortunately well you know it, i kind of had two reactions um i just sort of accept these type of things now as the norm like i see things yeah. like uh shootings and and rape gangs and the burning of these uh irreplaceable sacred sites as just those are normal events to me now because uh things have gotten so bad globally and so i have that experience where i'm like of course yeah yeah that makes perfect sense but also i feel uh, it's a it's a huge loss it's a huge tragedy um and i'm i am inclined to think that this was done on purpose likewise definitely i mean i that was my first reaction and and that was you know what i what i thought um you aura yeah uh starting with the last thing you guys said first uh i also agree and i think that actually the burden of proof is on people uh to say that it it was an accident um because i think occam's razor cuts pretty clearly in the direction of it not being an accident um because we haven't seen accidents like this in recent times, um, but we certainly have seen the opposite. We've seen intentional destruction of exactly this kind over and over and over again. So um, people like don't jump to conclusions. I'm like, no, um, <laughs> the conclusions have jumped to themselves. It has. I have nothing to do with it. Um, and in terms of the my you know my feelings about it or my my take on it, um, I have the same sort of. I won't. I don't want to call it dead to the world, but I do have a sort of, you know, detachment, detachment, a jaundiced eye towards this kind of thing, like Storm King was saying. And um, I, I, yeah, I don't know what else to say about my feelings in the moment of it. I, I almost when I I messaged a couple of people um, about it, um, and I was almost angry mess messaging them, like, see. <laughs> yeah right yeah you know yeah. um I, I was actually quite angry um that day and the next day i was uh i sort of i got into that sort of 
white hot clear anger where yeah uh, everything just um takes on like like i'm not even gonna waste any time being angry because i'm just gonna like go about the stuff that i know that needs to be done in my <laughs> life um motivated by the knowledge of what's going on in the world so that was sort of my i am i in the moment um reaction i i uh i revealed my power levels on normie book for a minute and I'm, oh lord <laughs> and it was sort of people were like whoa what what and i mean not everyone uh some people were like you know yeah obviously you know we know the, the thing is so i i mean i had two sort of takeaways the one is it's ridiculous to it's ridiculous to just rule out kebab it's ridiculous to just sort of like the way people were like how could you say that this was you're just jumping you're just blah blah, blah. i'm like yeah you're fucking right i am you know, it, it, it's it's like they've had all the, you know, almost a thousand attacks on churches just in France, just in France in the past year. Uh, and, you know, all the, and then I think after Notre Dame burned just yesterday, the day before they de they decapitated a statue of the Virgin Mary, you know, somewhere else in France that, that had already that statue had already been attacked. So, I mean, y yeah, absolutely. I'm jumping to this particular conclusion. But but also. At a certain level, like okay, so in the moment, I'm like, this was this was this was very obviously, you know, and 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 I still think that it was. I mean, as you as you say, or I think quite rightly, the burden of proof should be on the authorities and the mainstream media to like demonstrate to my satisfaction, epistemologically, that if they want to claim that it was an accident, that they're going to have really really good evidence establishing that. But even leaving that aside, I mean, the the to me, the kind of big picture or bigger picture issue here is i cannot trust i cannot trust that the authorities are not going to lie like even if you know will will we ever know let's say it was some muslim intentionally or unintentionally or whatever like will we will they ever let that be known i don't absolutely think absolutely not yeah so like okay so then what is my like let's say that it, if it was an accident then then they're going to say the same thing than if it wasn't. So why should I trust them? Why should I play this game where I'm going to believe what they say? You know what I mean? Like, like uh, the incentive, like, I have the, my incentive right now, as I see it, is not, like, it's, it's not to punish, it's not to go after Muslims per se, it's to punish the authorities that I can no longer trust for putting me in a situation where I can no longer trust them. And if the it's thing, a permanent, yeah. It, it's a permanent state of gaslighting they want to put you in. Right. It's not. It's not just gaslighting about this particular incident. It's. It's this total, like you say, like epistemological doubt that they've put us into. And the there's two possible responses. One is to continue to kowtow and continue to bow down before their authority and treat it as if it is epistemologically epistemologically neutral. Right. And the other reaction is the proper reaction, which is the one that you're articulating right now, which is just radical disbelief of all the bullshit. Yeah, and like and, and that's the thing is like, you know, I that's that's why I say like if the thing that they fear most, like the reason why they put me in this epistemological situation where I just cannot believe like no rational person and, and I, I to their credit, a lot of even kind of normie conservatives and not even super like conservative people are raising questions and, and, and even some in some cases alarms about, you know, well why are they ruling out terrorism while the fire is still hot? Uh and raising yeah, it, it, that's on something I noticed is that, you know, even while the news was still breaking that the building was burning, somehow we already know yeah, it's right. an accident. Yeah. No, that's 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 not true. And that to me, they're sort of like uh, playing their hand too early. Exactly. 
you know they've built this entire architecture like there, there are people uh, and these are very unfortunate people and I, I feel compassion for them because the the neoliberal news media has built this entire alternate reality um, that they maintain there are people who are basically I mean I think of it like a prison they're imprisoned in this in this false uh, uh, hyper reality and, and I, I knew I know some of these people and I talked to them and 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 there are people who legitimately believe that it's like a metaphysical impossibility that a Muslim <laughs> did it. <laughs> right, which is just insane. I mean, the only reason you would think that is because you you're you have been driven in literally insane, incapable of engaging with objective reality by this gaslighting media. Um, so this is what I say, like, okay, well, their agenda here is very clear. What they want is for people to just to believe them and, and to, to like by no means cast the blame by no means like take this out on Muslims therefore from in my way of thinking the way to punish that the way to punish them for putting me in this situation is by saying you know what like okay I'm not going to be insane about it if you can come up with video evidence of spontaneous combustion or whatever then then fine I may reevaluate barring that I'm going to believe it was Muslims and I'm going to blame them because that's what you don't want me to do and that's what you fear most and that's what strikes at the heart of your power and your control so that's what I'm going to do. One of the, um, you know, like many people, I'm now suddenly an expert on the arch architectural <laughs> history of Notre Dame, you know? Yeah. Um, but uh, if what I've been reading is is to be believed, and it's from sources I do believe, about the, the oak from which that ceiling, which is the main structure, the ceiling and the spire is the main destruction that's happened, uh, is um, not only very old in, in terms of like as timber, it's very old, but the trees themselves were extremely old in order to have large enough beams for the construction that they did. Um, so if you look at the age of the building, which is, you know, depending on how you want to measure it between like 800 and 900 years old and then the ages of the trees which again i'm not totally sure on this but you know the trees themselves were a few uh, a couple hundred years old themselves um and trees like that don't really exist now um so what's been lost is you know there's the violation of it there's we can get it when we get into sacred spaces in, in broader terms there's the the violation of the sacred space which would have could have been achieved by i don't know smearing feces or something sure. on it there, there's that but then there's the actual just physical impossibility of of recreating and then that that's not even getting into the abomination that we're almost assured to get uh when they do a a modern restoration yeah and think about think about like uh those trees you mentioned like think about as in terms of a being because plants are are you know on the fringes of being what you'd call a being i mean they to me have a rudimentary form of consciousness but how many years have of experience have those trees been through how much sunlight you know um how many animals have made them their home those those trees that were used to build uh those beams there's so much spiritual value there i mean i've got trees in my yard that are probably 70, 80, 100 years old, you know, with these, these very, very old giant uh, magnolias and oak trees and stuff. And, you know, if you just go outside and get in the right mindset and pay attention to these trees, they, you, they have like an inherent quality of sacredness and stillness and they're beautiful, majestic things. And, and now they're gone forever and can't really be replaced. I mean, that, that is to me, that's just horrifying. And, and I don't even like thinking about it. So I'm, I'm yeah, sorry, go on, Aura. 
No, just on, on top of that storm is also then on top of that, we have these people, very devout people who made all the carving of the, you know, who took these ancient trees and then carved them over hundreds of years intricately with thing with meanings and symbols that are incredibly meaningful to them and that are imbued with the, um, you know, what we might say is some of the best um, possible energy, the best possible side of human handiwork. Um, and, you know, it's just like crime upon crime when you think about it. Go it's, ahead. It's... Yes? Uh, yeah, it's just, I mean, years and years and years of just the best kind of intention and effort and craftsmanship and just love and I mean, you know, think about that's so much energetic power. That's, I mean, we're getting into talking about like maybe yeah. some of the most sacred, uh, powerful objects on the face of the earth. We're yeah, that, that, that craftsmanship. That's a good uh, summary. Is that is it? We're taking these 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 trees that are already you know have their own energy, like you were talking about that, and then adding to it with uh, with human intention and human energy, and and you know that's that's the creation of a sacred space i can't think of a better example right so you you see that i guess was sort of my question is so how well before uh so you see you see the creation of a sacred space in terms of human intentionality sort of imbuing the space or things in it with with this kind of energy or or how do you understand i'm not sure i i actually jotted down this question for this discussion (laughs) which is which is to what degree are sacred spaces do they pre-exist and yeah. and humans find them and 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 then build their temples around them so to speak and okay, to what so, to what degree do they do they create them through their intention and energy and is okay. that even a good question Go yes it is but here's here's I, I wanted to talk about this specifically because it's so interesting but you know i spend a lot of time especially my free time out in the woods you know, go to parks and other kind of stuff. I've been to a whole, most of the state parks and, and national parks in my area. And there are absolutely times when you're walking through a, a, you know, when you're out somewhere where there's a lot of natural area, a lot of woods where you'll come upon something and you'll notice that this particular area has a different energy and has an element of sacredness. Like, so here's an example um, in the great smoky mountains national park, there's a really old trail and there's not really anything. I forgot the name of it, but it's actually outside the park. Uh, and then the trail takes you through parts of the park and there's a part where you can split off and it hasn't really been maintained that well, but you come over this hill and when we were there, it's just these rolling hills full of these little bitty white wildflowers. And it just, when I came over the hill and saw it, it struck me like a ton of bricks. So I would say that there are kind of two categories of sacred spaces. There are the naturally occurring sacred spaces, which, you know, I guess that's just a confluence of, the biosphere there and maybe maybe ley lines and stuff like that just maybe sort of natural things that give an element of sacredness like if you were to come upon you know let's say a waterfall you would find that area more sacred because of the beauty and then there are the ones that are created from human intention uh like notre dame or a church or even if you were to you know uh, build an altar to the patriarchs or something you know out on your property and continue visiting it burn incense and pray and meditate there and i think maybe probably the most intense kind of sacred space would be if you were to find one of those naturally occurring sacred spots and then also build something there and imbue it with intention. And that sort of uh, goes back to what we were saying about the beams in Notre Dame, where they were already very sacred because of the age and majesty of these trees. But then 
the human action out of love and devotion and wisdom that was put into them just made it even more so. Yeah, there's a lot of, uh, I don't know, is this, is, do you have this um, phenomenon in Japanese Buddhism of, in, in like, uh, in Indian and Tibetan Buddhism, you have this like, uh, self arisen, you have, first of all, in general, in like India, you have a lot of places where it's kind of like, uh, uh, you know, this, tr it, it's like the, the space itself has something. And yeah, I think that's the more common model. It, and, and, and I think typically, if there is some kind of constructed site it would be on or around a place that is already recognized as being by itself having some kind of power but then there's also um like i think it's in nepal somewhere there's like a um like a, a famous stupa that's called um i don't know it's like a self-arisen thing though it's like the stupa made itself and this is it's like a really famous uh, let me see if i can find it but uh yeah, it's it's like uh, it it the it's like a stupa a stupa for those of you who don't know I don't know if, you know I guess I'm sure probably most of our audience is not Buddhist is is a um, is like a monument it's it's a representation of the of the mind of the Buddha and it's it's one of the oldest um, sort of um, things that Buddhists build there's like a, one and there's you know one, there's four main holy sites for the Buddhist tradition and one of them in Sarnath which is where the Buddha first taught the Dharma there's like a big very old stupa have y'all have y'all ever seen it or been been that way no in in real life no yeah no in yeah right in uh I didn't that, even know about it oh really yeah it's outside Varanasi you know you know Varanasi right yes yeah so Varanasi so that's a great example so Varanasi is one of these places where it's just you know as old as like human civilization and has been you know a kind of energetic center of hinduism for ever um and that was it was the same thing it was you know one of these centers of, of hinduism and indian religion when the buddha was alive and so when he after he attained enlightenment not super far from there um in in what's now bihar in india in bodh gaya um he went essentially to varanasi and then it, he taught the dharma for the first time it was like some dude, some rich dude had a nice, had a huge, like his house and he had a huge land and it was like a nice private park, a deer park. And he taught the Dharma for the first time at this deer park um, outside Varanasi. And so it's one of the main holy sites and they have a, this really, and like nowadays in, you know, in Tibet, they have, you know, stupas can be really elaborate and they have this, all this kind of interesting stuff going on um this one is basically it, it's it's uh i think it used to look a little different it was you know it was the whole thing was torched by the muslims anyway but uh it was it was um it's like this kind of brick round structure it's very basic by the by the standards of more more modern or, or recently constructed stupas um but it was you know it's an, it's a really interesting place it's it's a uh, um uh, I recommend anyone who's interested in like any of this stuff or in, even just Indian history Varanasi is an incredible place and and Sarnath where this thing is is definitely um worth the trip um but anyway yeah so the the, the stupas typically are understood to be something that people have to build but then there's also this tradition of like stupas that spontaneously manifest um I don't know do you so it doesn't sound like y'all have anything like that well, I, I will say in, in so my 
the school I came from is 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 not um, what you'd call like I guess Japanese Rinzai. It was the line that I came through is is still rooted in the classical period um, in Chinese, which is the Tang and Song, and and uh, masters would take on the name of where their temple was. So like my one of my favorite uh, figures from the um, from the Chinese Chan tradition is Yunmen, Yunmen Wenyan, and he's actually named for the mountain. Uh, that his monastery is on. So there is in Chinese Zen a very close relationship between, uh, I guess, the geography. Like you had the northern school and the southern school, which to this day is is still basically like the Rinzai and Soto split. And uh, one of the most sacred spots for Chinese Zen was actually Yunmen's mummy um, was there for a very, very long time. He was mummified there. And it was actually in, during the People's Revolution um, with Mao that it was destroyed, and now it's been replaced by a sculpture. Um, Fucking Marxist. Yeah, that's that is a place that I would really like to go. Um, he's, he his record basically marks the end of the classical period. So if I was to go visit a place, that would be where I wanted to go. And it's a huge monastery too. Sounds amazing. One of the uh, an, an example from outside the Buddhist world. Um, that helps me to kind of think about this question about built versus discovered uh, sacred places is in the Roman Empire. And one thing people forget about, or in the Roman Republic, uh, one people, one thing moderns don't take into account enough about Rome is how intensely religious they were. Everything um, had to do with the gods, um, and there was nothing that they did that did not involve some sort of ritual, um, some sort of either looking at the auspices or um, making a sacrifice to this, that, or the other god. And every uh, city and town had its um, had its hearth, you know, had its like burning flame. Um, and anyway, if you read things like um, like the books of Mercha Eliade or um, the Golden Bough by Sir James Fraser, you can learn that the Romans would create a sacred space, like a temple, in the middle of their town. And some of their towns may have been chosen for a pre-existing religious reason, but most of them are just normal human settlements in that they're in logical places like, you know, alongside a river or next to a port or something. But then they would add a sacred space um, that became sacred to them through their own intentionality. But they also would do something closer to what Storm King is talking about out in the woods, which is they would discover little grottos and little, um, you know, uh, clearings and waterfalls and stuff and intuit or, you know, a skeptic would say, imagine. Uh, but I believe that they would actually just sense that those were sacred places and those would become sacred places to go visit uh, over time. So those are sort of two types of ways that places become sacred. One is through pure intentionality and another is through discovery. And the third is what Dharma is talking about um, with the Buddha, which is that the place was quote unquote found by humans because it was a human's act action that made it sacred. Um, but, and then it becomes built around that. So the, uh, you know, Bodh Gaya and, uh, and the places that the Buddha um, taught uh, become sacred because uh, a sacred being, although that's probably not the right way to refer to the Buddha, but you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Um, you a, can, a holy... all, can you all see also, I put it on the screen share now. I don't know if you can see, but uh, yeah, I see it. Yeah, yeah, see that's, it. The, yeah. that's the stupid that I was talking about. And you can see it's real. I, I think there was um, 
like a layer of gold or something, some kind of precious metals around the bottom, which is why it looks a little different. But um, yeah, no, it's a great point that, I mean, because it's, inter it's interesting. I don't think, I mean, I don't know, again, how, how so much about how things work in like the East Asian context, but um, in Indian and, and definitely also in Tibetan Buddhism, there's like a, we like you, you we refer to um bodhgaya as the vajrasana the like the the adamantine the the vajra the the diamond um seat and um it's it it, it it it's it's it acquired a kind of i think the way that christians often think about jerusalem as kind of the like energetic epicenter of the cosmos it, it varies for for our cosmos for our world system that's Vajrasana, Bodhgaya. I mean, that's typically the way you would. I mean, that's kind of the polite way to refer to Bodhgaya. The place is as, um, as the as the Vajra seat, the di the diamond seat of the of the Buddha. Um, and yeah, I don't I don't think. I mean, to my knowledge, it's sort of it acquires that status. I guess there's those. There's also like I guess prophecies and stuff. But but I think it's, it's sort of understood that it. It acquires that status because the Buddha attained enlightenment there. Yeah, that's um, that's exactly right. Although it is an interesting question uh, when people um, talk about maybe there's a cosmological reason that that is where the Buddha <laughs> attained enlightenment. It's, it's, a, an, it's a classic chicken and egg. Yeah, right. <laughs> Elaborate. Well, I mean, you know, you could, is it sacred because that's where he attained enlightenment or did he attain enlightenment there because it was sacred? It's hard to know. And it's probably, you know, I'm inclined to say perhaps both. Yeah. So it's like, which came first, the chicken or the egg? It's sort of the same conundrum. Definitely. Um... Yeah, you know, as a Westerner, it's, I have an ambiguous relationship to some of these Buddhist holy sites. Um because I've never visited any of them, at least the ones in India or Tibet. Um, I've done a bit of traveling in East and Southeast Asia, so I've seen Buddhist temples and um, you know more minor Buddhist holy sites in various places, uh, like in China or in uh, Hong Kong and uh, and in Thailand. But um, I have a very ambiguous relationship to them because I am a Westerner and I. I'm very self-conscious about not trying to LARP as if I'm Asian. Um, yeah. what, ma what matters to me is the teaching uh, and the truth or falsity of, of the teaching. And um, at the same time, I recognize that those teachings came up in specific times and places. And so it's really short-sighted and stupid. And I'm only um, cheating myself if I don't try to make an effort to understand um you know, the culture, the time, the place, and the people and everything where these teachings rose, even with the Buddha himself, who's sort of the most universal figure in Buddhism, obviously. Um, but he's the most universalized, right? You know, people tend not to think of him as an Indian so much, I think, in, as they do, as they would think of, uh, you know, um, your friend Dogen, uh, Storm King, as a, as a Japanese <laughs> person. Right? So, um, nevertheless, it's, it's very interesting to... You know, like when studying the Buddha and studying the, the original teachings of Buddhism, um, as far as we have them in the Pali Canon, uh, 
to understand that you can't really understand the words that the Buddha is using without reference to the Vedanta. And then immediately you're back in history, right? Because you, uh, the, the vocabulary that is in the Buddhist teaching is, is only half understandable unless you understand the, ter the philosophical terms that they were using in the Vedic tradition up until the Buddhist time. So that has not much to do with spaces per se, but it's, um, I guess my point is, although I try not to LARP as an Asian, I also recognize that like these places are important, not, and they remain important even if I was born, you know, on the North American continent, ten thousand miles away. Well, you have to kind of walk the fine line between weebery and uh, appreciation. You know, um, <laughs> yeah. it's it's just hard. It, it, it's hard to navigate because I definitely uh, am not trying to. Uh, weave out over the Zen masters, but also I'd like to understand it. And I do have quite a lot of respect for um, the Chinese culture during that time. And I think maybe it's also important to note that it, specifically if you're practicing Zen, I mean, if you're practicing Chinese Zen, you're, you're getting, you're getting the teaching through an Irish man who went to India <laughs> and, and became a, and became a monk and then went to China. And if you're practicing Japanese, so, then okay, I mean, another I, layer. 10 out of 10 on the, on the troll but i'm just curious like as a do we i mean so the the bodhidharma was an irishman thing like wh where does that even come from okay so there's a whole lot of material that refers to bodhidharma as the red bearded uh blue-eyed barbarian so to me slammed up as far as i'm concerned yeah well right. but that's true about genghis khan too I mean, you know, obviously, so Genghis Khan was also was Irish. Irish. also Irish, you know. Yeah, uh, and so was <laughs> Muhammad, right? His his beard was red. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, so you know, it, it's all come down through a series of cultural exchanges, and and I think the the best we can do in terms of appreciating it and doing it justice is to um, try and keep the core of the teaching. Uh, the same can make sure the translation is is done properly and nothing's lost and nothing's gained so for me you know i, I got into it uh via zen so i wanted to go back and sort of understand the indian uh, kind of genesis of the whole thing and so i gravitated towards nagarjuna and the madhyamaka and i thought you know, that was sort of how i put it in cultural context for myself because i you know the fundamental verse of the middle way to me you know, he ends up at emptiness is itself empty and therefore conventional. Uh, and so basically, you know, we're going to we're going to say that all of this teaching and so far. So I don't want to maybe we could have a discussion on emptiness um, because I, I don't I, I, I think that I don't want to go too far down this rabbit. Yeah, I, I'm kind of out in the weeds. Yes. Yeah, so. no, 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 no. I, I think it's a great topic we should discuss, but uh, really briefly. And maybe the, I don't know if this is what you meant or not. It, it's emptiness, the linguistic or conceptual construct is empty but emptiness when you say emptiness itself i mean it's also it's not that it's not empty but anyway it doesn't matter we should talk about emptiness on another yeah time. we should do a whole a whole a whole yeah thing on that. guys i'm i'm really I, to my to my understanding the essence of zen i mean zen is essentially centered around the perfection of wisdom literature and nagarjuna with without much or any really necessarily of um the yogacara type influence as, as i understand well, it I don't ba know. basically what i'm trying to say is that there's a clear line from nagarjuna's argumentation that you know even before there was zen his conclusions implied zen sure. you know what i mean yeah. being a a practice completely outside yeah uh, 
outside the philosophy and the scripture and the word. So when he gets to that point, it's like, boom, there's in. You know well, what I we mean? Should, we so, should do a thing on emptiness for sure. I think, and that's probably yeah. also a good way to talk about like doctrinal differences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, that'd be a fun show. Do, emptiness. I, I don't think that's really a, that's not a term for the Theravada guys, right? Aura. Aura. He may have went to get some more coffee. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, the term is is shunyata. Right? Shunyata. Yeah. Um, well, while he's gone, real quick, because I wanted to to get back to the thing. Um, so what you're looking at, that is, I believe in the, oh yeah, it says in the welcome to Paul. So it's in the Paul, but it's a self-arisen, um, now I've never been, but it looks pretty cool, but it, it's it's a self-arisen structure. I guess the, I, from my understanding, the, the, uh, the structure, I, I guess the, the actual, I think it's that the actual stupa itself, that self-arisen is like inside there somewhere. That, that that thing is obviously very you know it's it's been made by people but um and then of course all the other stuff around it but that the actual thing itself the the like the self-arisen um stupa itself is is not it's like inside there somewhere or underneath it yeah it looks kind of like they found it and built up a room yeah exactly, exactly. It. yeah that reminds me of the kaaba uh <laughs> No, it does because it, it, some people say that there's a meteorite in the middle of that big black cube. Interesting. I have. A, I, I don't know much. I, I I've seen pictures that claim to be from the inside, or like some kind of artist representation. I, I it looked. Have you seen it? That maybe I can pull that up next. Um, but I I I saw like a artist representation of. I think it was an artist representation of like what's inside, and it was like kind of weird. Let me let me I'll find it up. But yeah. So okay. But I I I'm still curious. So okay. So how from a Buddhist framework, how do you understand like Christian or non-Buddhist? Um, so in other words, is it just like the karma of, of people's energy or whatever you want to call it, that people put into the thing that that's what sort of builds it up and then has an effect, even though it's not like, how does the, how does the sacredness work in your understanding? I would say that it's essentially, um, we're going to go out on a little bit of a limb here and say that this is, you know, essentially what you might call a magical practice in that it's intention that uh, makes reality different, you know? And so, like, I'll give an example from my personal life, right? So we got a split-level house, and we mostly live on the top, but I've got a weight area, and I've burned incense, and I've got all kind of stuff up there, and, and you know, I, I play certain music down there that's meant to be sacred, that's tuned in a certain way. Based. And, yeah, absolutely. And this uh this become a sacred spot, right? So I think that it's just it basically works on the the, pra- the magical practice of intention, which is tapping into karma as well. You know, you're getting out what you put in. Yeah, that makes sense to me, for sure. I totally agree. Um I think that it is um again, putting aside uh instances where maybe people f- discovered a magical spot that when you're creating a sacred space, maybe, you know, Notre Dame is a good Example now that Ile de Ile de Paris there or Ile de la Cité I should say where it is located. <laughs> what? Yeah. Oh, is it called the? I thought the Ile de la. Is it actually called the Ile de la Cité? I didn't realize that. Yeah, it is. Okay, that's funny. Yeah. Um, that spot is important because that's the natural center of Paris, just geographically, because yeah. it's right in the middle of the river, um, and that is where the Parisii tribe. So, so they renamed it after la Cité. Oh, I, now I don't. 
I don't know. The yeah, probably. I mean, it must have been if that's the like name now. It wouldn't have been called that before the revolution. Anyway, sorry, that was just I didn't. That's a little funny footnote. I didn't know that. Sorry, go on. No, de la cité. Oh, city. de la cité. Oh, okay. Yeah. That makes way yeah. more sense. Yeah. What, what did you think I said? I th- la, you know, laicité. La, la, oh, laicité. La, no. <laughs> la, laicity is like a yeah kind of no, a technical no, no french no. term in french no but they discourse. should they should rename it that now yeah you're um, right that's why i was laughing i was like oh that yeah. would make perfect sense if i thought you were making a joke about like how they nah. renamed it from from one thing into something they were like <laughs> renaming it after laicity anyway no uh, yeah um uh, but anyway that so that that might be a natural space to have the center of the city and in fact it not might be it is a natural place to have the center of the city and apparently the Parisii tribe had their main fortifications there when they had their encounters with the Romans. So it's not a totally random spot for a giant church, of course. Um, on the other hand, uh, as far as I know, there's no, before the building of the cathedral, it's not like there was some sacred Christian thing that happened there or some, you know, visitation by the Madonna or something like that. Now, now I might be wrong, but if that's not the case in Notre Dame, that's certainly the case in some other cathedrals. So that if you, if you'll, if you will, um, I'm saying that that spot is, from a religious point of view, sort of random. From a secular point of view, not random. Um, well, where was I going with this? Ah, but the intentionality there is what has created um, this sacred feeling. And I, I've been there. Um, I've been inside that building. And it is, you know, this is a very cliche thing to say, but cliches are true for a reason. Um, it is awe-inspiring literally in the sort of old sense of that term um you walk in and you immediately feel uh humble and you feel filled with uh, beauty and um a sacred feeling um they did a really good job building it um to to imbue that feeling and i think you know part of it's the architecture the sheer size of it and all that but it's also the you know, we talked last week about magic and people, you know, radiating this or that vibe and everything. And probably I'm repeating myself to to, to say this, but I, I do think that the real world is affected by our internal intentionality, not just through our actions and words, although certainly through those, but also through our our thoughts and our emotions, essentially. And so if you spend a lot of time in one spot, just, you know, being filled with, um, you know, anger and hate or something, you're going to make like a little dark spot in the universe there. I really do believe that. Oh, um, without a doubt. I've, 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 what's interesting is, because I've definitely experienced that. I mean, I've seen that, you know, with my own eyes. And and I wonder how much of, because um, in order to not think that or accept that, or, you know, you, you kind of have to be plugged into some really weird secular materialist type worldview that, you know, I mean, I think even those kind of people, I don't know, I, I don't think that I've ever really met someone that totally shut that off, you know, like that, that could totally, that was like, even if they would say like, oh, you know, it's no different. I could be in a graveyard at 12 midnight and, yeah. you know, nothing's going to happen. Yeah, like, <laughs> actions speak louder than words. Exactly. Right? So if, you, if you talk to a strict materialist on these questions, they'll they'll say the proper thing for a strict materialist to say, which is, oh, that's all baloney. But they don't actually live their lives no, that way. not even a know? little bit. So, um, so, like, you know, I use the example of anger and hate or something. Now, likewise, if you fill a space over you know, hundreds or thousands of years with devotion and, um, you know, um, 
pure, uh, maybe not the right word, but uh, good intentions and everything, it is going to soak that up and it is going to radiate that back to people. I mean, you know, think about the the cliche, you know, mom's basement masturbatorium of, you know, like this dank, gross space uh, that, you know, where people hide away with their furtive little lusts and angers and everything like that. And we'd say, oh, well, it's, you know, it's gross. It's got like empty pizza boxes in it or something and a bog roll or whatever. And that's why it's gross down there. But even if you were to clean it up and, you know, like take ammonia and bleach to the whole thing, it's still going to radiate this like gross kind of feeling in there because, you know, somebody's spending all this time down there being a gross human being. So we can create. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, just actually to, to bring it full circle to what you were just talking about storm, you know, like the opposite of what you can do in your daily life, and this is getting more practical about things, is create your own sacred space and um, put your good intentionality into it. And um, and even more importantly, perhaps, is keep your bad intentionality out of it, you know? So don't, if you're going to be gross or, you know, hateful or something like that, then keep it away from that space so that when you do go back to that space, um, you can lock back into those that good energy more easily. And you know, if you're if you're going to be real into it, and you really want to make your own sacred space, there are certain building materials that uh, are said to absorb this energy better. Like fieldstone is an example. Um, quartz is said to do that. Uh, old old wood from deciduous trees is supposed to be good for that. But let me let me uh, link up to some of the stuff you were saying. When we think about like like if you watch like Ghost Adventures or, or uh, Paranormal Live or whatever, what are the places that are always said to be the most haunted? abandoned sanatoriums abandoned hospitals uh um slaughterhouses in fact there are a lot of cases where someone has deliberately built like a halloween attraction to be like oh come see the scary haunted house and then it ends up with a lot of negative paranormal activity this is the same principle as creating your your sacred space but in reverse it's it's the same thing it's very clear this all works on on the rules of intentionality yeah you know sorry go on no that was it or were you going to say something? No. Oh, okay. Well, no. What I, what I was going to say is it's, it's it's an interesting. I don't I don't think it's uh, I think it's all you know. I mean, first of all, most of this stuff is is out there. If you kind of know where to look, you can follow breadcrumb from from one or one or two books to another one or two books, and then you know people you know and people publish stuff they shouldn't publish, etc. But uh, I don't think I'm revealing anything to say. You know, when when you do certain kinds of tantric rituals, like basically the first step is always you you request the site like wherever it is that you are and it should be you know it should be a place that already has certain things in place um i mean there's there's some practices that you wouldn't do that like should this uh, kind of like it's a practice of you essentially offer your your body <laughs> to demons you like go to um a graveyard a charnel ground and you um like you 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 basically offer yeah you 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 like say okay all you bad people bad forces demons spirits whatever like come and eat my flesh (laughs) and then and um it's really quite intense but if you're not doing that then typically what you would do is you would say okay well you know all you local um gods and spirits and whatever nagas etc um you know i'm gonna be doing some stuff so please be nice and you um, request the use of the space. And then there's some of them that don't want to cooperate. And for those, then you have like sort of 
um, you have more kind of, you know, you try to buy them off, and then if the ones that will refuse just to, will make trouble no matter what and cannot be bought off, then you, you, know, you have, like, kind of more wrathful methods to deal with. Um, but the point is that you have to, like, before you do anything, before you actually even take refuge in the, in the Buddha and the Dharma and the Sangha and, like, really start, in a sense, the ritual proper, you have to, you know, get permission to use the space and then purify the space and then establish protection around the space. And I, I mean, even in the, I mean, that's the th it's one of the things that we were talking about with the magic thing. Um, I, I don't believe protection circles originated with the Buddhist tradition, clearly. I mean, obviously we know in Western occultism, they have all kinds of weird shit that they do that I don't really know or care that much about. But uh, I, I, clearly there would have had to have been some kind of Indian precedent for, you know, you establish a protection circle before doing the ritual that was then kind of adapted within a Buddhist framework. I'm somehow back on magic anyway. It doesn't matter. But it's related, right? It's absolutely related, man. Yeah, and you know, the best protection you can have is uh, the perfect mirror mind. Yeah, ex if, well, exactly. Yes. Yes. You know, if you can, um, if you can simply just... Uh, confront the great matter directly right now and see into your nature then there is nothing from that realm that has any that can have any effect on you uh especially if you can you know the stronger your practice is the the, the stronger you are and that's something that's terrifying to them you know you'll you know you see the, the my favorite uh buddhist art is it's the buddha sitting there under the bodhi tree and he's being confronted by mara's daughters and the demons and he's just got this wonderful smile on his face and his hands up. That, be gone thought, but right. like not angry, yeah. just like, you know, be like, gone just, thought. Just no, just a simple no. It's terrifying and it's amazing and beautiful. Yeah, that's actually in the, again, I, I don't think I'm, I hope I'm not, you know, revealing things that shouldn't be revealed. But again, I'm a, like, um, you know, it's, it's sad, you know, the, the reason, the, Yes, you have this kind of you have you know there's certain things that you should visualize when you're doing the protection, but the you know first of all the nature of all these things is this adamantine awareness and like even in the symbolism in the visualization it's like it, it itself is you know for one one aspect of it would be the five wisdoms in um, sort of the symbolic form associated with the five Buddha families of those five wisdoms. So it's all just like your mind protecting itself from demons that are also your mind, right? <laughs> so it's like, you know, it's all mind, man. That brings up an interesting question that is in in broader scope about Buddhism, which is that if we believe that um, that the whole world is illusory, uh, then what's with all this, you know, taking back to last week's show and this week too, what's with all these sacred spaces and mantras yeah. and and magic and everything and um you know the the simple answer is, for me at least is that um until you reach that point you you know you are living in this illusory reality as this embodied person with these various characteristics and stuff and that's why buddhism is a path right buddha taught the path it, that's uh that's the fourth noble truth right that's the last one on there <laughs> because even if the first noble truths are true which they are um, that doesn't help you if you haven't already reached enlightenment, right? So how the heck are you supposed to get from one to the other? And that's by the path. And, um, you know, the path doesn't directly address some of the things we're talking about today, but it's analogous, if you will, that, um, you know, we, we have to do these 
we don't have to, but it's helpful to do these practices and to understand these things if you're going to walk the path from, because you have to start where you are, right? There's there's only one mountain peak, but there's many, many paths up that mountain. So you, the only place that you can start is where you are and and try to make the climb. Let me say that though everything may be like an illusion, uh, but the illusions aren't illusions of illusions. They're real illusions. <laughs> you know, everything... Uh, Everything expresses its dharma perfectly, and there is nothing that obstructs anywhere. Um, yet when they slam your leg in the temple gate, it hurts. And this is exactly as it should be. Agree. Hmm. Yeah, it's, I, I think theists have the same, a similar kind of problem, right? Because God is everywhere and omnipotent, you know, can act everywhere. So why do you need to localize it in a certain way right i mean it's also the it's also just theodicy i mean it's it's also just um the the question of you know like if if all is god or if all is you know dharma and everything then then why is there such a thing as differentiation between the two in our lived experience uh there isn't (laughs) well in our lived ultimately no but in our it's an issue i mean there is in our you know i'm looking at in 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 the in the stuff that I, you know, connect with, it's like, it's often about like blue and yellow. Like there's like, you know, when you're looking at stuff, you see blue over here and yellow over there. And it, you know, arguably, at least as I understand it, when, you know, it shouldn't, it shouldn't be like that at a certain level. Like if you, if it, if things look like, it feels like I'm in here and stuff is out there, then that's a problem. Um, (laughs) It's it's not like an insurmountable problem and it's not like, um, I mean, even that is folded within the kind of the bigger thing about like, well, you know, that's still just an appearance, right? But uh, no, nonetheless, it's an as an appearance, it appears, and 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 it kind of has these problems. Look, when you let's say you read something and you don't understand it, that not understanding is you having perfectly accorded with the situation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know, um, yeah. A monk, a monk asked Joshua, uh, "What about it when everything expresses its dharma perfectly?" And he said, "It is the seven of seven. It is the eight of eight. Now, how do you understand that?" Hmm. Well, one can say the same thing about all the people who are gaslit into assuming that it couldn't possibly have been Muslim that purposely burned down uh, Notre Dame. They're according with reality because reality has taught them to to think that. So. It's true on one level, but uh, there's many circumstances in life in which it's not that helpful. Just to push back a little. Yeah, I mean, there is a certain, you know, obviously there's a superficial thing where things seem obscured and it seems that there's error and corruption. But this is, this is even that error and corruption yeah. uh, and, and obs- obs- you know, the obscured nature of it is also expressing its dharma perfectly. It's again, we always arrive at the same spot where it's, it's unsayable in the, in the, in the kind of more, um, in the less philosophical literature, but in the more, in the kind of like, like, um, liturgical text, you could say that, that I'm familiar with. It's, it's often kind of said like, you know, there's not even the name impurity. Like it's not, you know what I mean? Like, like you can, like it just doesn't. And also, I mean, in a sense, there is, but like that's what the, the tantric thing is about. Is like, expl- Like, why, you know, why do you, uh, why do, why do you say like in the tantric thing we say like you know there's the five meats, and the five nectars which are which are you know like, 
like just di- disgusting bodily fluids and stuff. But but it's like we see all these the five nectars and the five meats because it's like well you think that a steak is really nice. Actually, in India, it would have been disgusting. Like the the idea of eating any kind of meat, far less cow meat, would have just blown. It would have been like this is the most disgusting thing I've ever heard of. But then they like, okay, you think a steak is nice, and you think uh, a pile of shit is disgusting. But that's just your. I mean, that's you know, where is the disgust coming from? Is it coming from the thing itself, like to a maggot or to you know a fly or whatever? The the the, the pile of shit is actually really nice. So it's not. It's not coming from the pile of shit. It it's coming from your like th- this kind of combination of circumstances in your own mind engaging with it, and so this idea of like, well, this thing is pure and this other thing is impure. That that ultimately is a kind of mental projection. Now that's not to say that you should go around eating piles of shit. You're going to get sick and die, and that's not going to help anyone. But but it's to understand like, well, you know, the, the the these these kind of mental designations. It can be very powerful, but they're they're just sort of thing labels we apply to stuff and and their real nature is just not is has not very little to do with that yeah see this is where sort of the left folks would say like oh you know buddhism is allowing for this moral relativism and this nihilism look let's say let's say that you know all this that you're saying is true right this they are relative it is coming from you it is based on circumstances and it's not ultimate but it just so happens that that is the situation you are in. I mean, yeah, you're not right. just anything. You're a human. You're in this situation. Well, right. The takeaway there is not to go around like trying to, you know, if you're at a fancy French restaurant and that you order a pile, if you order a steak and they come out with a pile of shit that you should feel like, oh, okay, that's fine. I'm just going to eat this. Like, that's not the takeaway. <laughs> no, no. There's an order to it, despite the fact that it is, um, it everything is lacks an intrinsic self-nature. Yeah. And it and arises arises dependently. That doesn't mean there's no order. There's an order, and you know all this nihilism, relativism stuff might be true if you were nothing in particular, uh, but you are a person. Yeah, that's right. And in fact, it's not only um, not only would that leftist interpretation be incorrect or off base, but it's actually the true teaching is the actual exact opposite of that, because. If we understand that everything is relative on a very deep level, that helps our clarity in perceiving the relativistic relationships between like we it, it becomes more clear, not less clear, that you do eat steak and you don't eat shit. Or, you know, uh you do eat <laughs> chickpeas, I guess, and you don't eat uh shit. Yeah, um, and you actually get more clarity into operating within this relativistic world in a sane, healthy, and positive way um, because you're less deluded about why these things are good and why they're bad. Like DK was saying, the steak is better for you to eat, not because uh, inherently steakiness is like what is good eatingness, but because you are a human and you need the nutrients in that steak and everything. And that, that's a very simplistic example, but when we get into these you know, very elaborate self-delusions that people put themselves into or that exterior forces uh, put them into through indoctrination and everything. The more clarity you can get about uh, the relativity of all those things, the easier it is to pick your way through all of that noise um, on a truthful path. Now, I'm not claiming that I do that all the time, but I can tell you that I do it better when I'm operating closer to this level of 
uh, seeing seeing the world with clarity. I'm I'm not speaking clearly, but do you guys understand what I mean? Oh, I, yeah, I absolutely. Yeah. yeah, it's like oh, there's a very very famous um, line. You know, I don't know if you've heard or maybe I've mentioned. I don't, I don't remember if I've mentioned it or not. But in in it's attributed to Guru Rinpoche, the um, who was an eighth century master who went to Tibet. Uh, it's a kind of whole interesting story that I won't get into now. But he's anyway, he's a very very important figure in Tibetan Buddhism. And he says, you know, as, although my view is as high as the sky, my attention to like the detail of karma, of action, is as finely ground as flour. That is exact. That's exactly it, man. It's it. Thank you for bringing up karma because that's exactly what it is. When you when you can perceive, uh, when you can perceive more clearly, you perceive karma more clearly, and you understand much more clearly which actions lead to which results. Again, not with perfect clarity until you're totally enlightened, but yeah. there are degrees of that kind of clarity. Let me uh, let me let me put this in Zen terms because I find it very interesting and it relates. So, if you look at the 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 koan. Zen, there's a thing we say like you stink of Zen, <laughs> and that means <laughs> that you have you are absolutely totally wrapped up in the conventional truth of the teachings. You're worried about karma. You're just totally ensnared and lost in all that. And when you find monks that get like that, talking to their master, you always find the master saying these deflationary remarks. Like, for my, a good example is you know my miracle is that when I'm hungry I eat, and when I'm tired I go to sleep. And then you'll find when the monks don't actually understand this but they're trying to ape this behavior then you'll find the master talking about perfect dharmas and enlightened buddhas in the heavens and 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 that sort of thing so the you know the that's i guess the zen translation of what you guys are talking about well it's always i mean yeah it's always uh it's a question of like antidotes right there's like you know eighty four thousand antidotes for the eighty four thousand things that are yeah. wrong Mm -hmm. yeah dk i wanted to um this is sort of jumping topics here but you posed the question a while back about uh how do we interpret um for example christian holy spaces and everything mm -hmm. um and we i don't know did we really address that and i was curious do you have did was there something you no, i you think wanted to well say? i mean i, I guess it's because I, I have my own sort of um soft spot for christianity and so i i um it's just an it's just a question that's on my mind. I, I I think it there's one way to look at it, which is just in a, in a in a sense reductive to where you know Christianity. I I pers like I personally, I mean, the way I sort of at this point at least make make sense of stuff is I'm like, well, you know, Christ is like the European Buddha or you know whatever. Like he's a Semite, but he's the, the Buddha for the West or something, or at least he was for you know. There's some some kind of thing like that. So I mean, so so there's these people who are doing this thing that is correct as far as i can ascertain in terms of conduct and also you know getting into the you know like uh i, I if you if you if you if you know who to read if you can if you know where to look then then they have the view as far as i can tell as well so they have the view and they have the conduct and they have you know they, they talk about the result in certain ways in terms of you know being you attain a certain kind of body that has certain kind of power you know powers and and capacities and so then it's like, okay, well, so they have this kind of thing. And, and so I don't know that it's necessary, like, because I guess to me, when I think about, uh, you know, like a, like a kind of a, because like in India, all over the place, there's, you know, just like trees, like trees that are even just worship as, you know, the tree is the, 
the thing and 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 maybe it's like identified with shiva or something or there's you know it's like oh this is a bairab tree or this is a tree where bairab hangs out or something like that but often it's even just like it's the tree and then there's a certain kind of power that definitely that's associated with that and and that you know that 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 people build up um but to me that's different i mean I, I and i guess part of it too is just the scale like when i'm thinking about comparing something like that to something like notre dame or you know any really of the great cathedrals of europe um i don't know something about it feels different to me but i don't really know what that would is and it could just be my own biases i'm not really sure i don't know if that makes i don't know if i'm when i uh i had my old job i used to i was i had an hour for lunch and right by the office in the city center, there was this really old um, Catholic church, and it had this all wood sanctuary. Um, was, and you know, there's nobody there during the day, mm -hmm. uh, very rarely. And it has this beautiful stained glass and this intricate woodwork. And it was always so palpable to me. Like I would, uh, you know, you go from the the busy, nasty smelling, loud city center, you walk through the courtyard, and you walk into the sanctuary, and there was just this very intense uh, mood or vibe change. And I would sit and I would do Zazen on the pew mm -hmm. in the church on my mm -hmm. lunch break. And there was some really cool stuff that happened. And, you know, some of this is just my eyes and the reaction to the light through the, the, uh, the stained glass. But there were some very beautiful moments. And um, one time uh, there's also a Catholic monastery relatively near this city. And, you know, the monks make trips out. And one of those guys was actually in there with me. I don't know if he was praying or what, but he saw me and I nodded at him. And he nodded back and he sat on the other side of the pew and we both just sat in silence oh, for about half nice. an hour and it was really really cool it was really cool we had a little conversation afterwards um and he had said something like uh christ is speaking to you from everything at all times everything is giving you a sermon at all times yeah and i mean that's I, I found that very interesting yeah that's the view i mean that's and, and so this is where I mean I don't know I don't know that it's ultimately reconcilable or, or something I just need I mean it's just I'm just talking now because I'm kind of you know I'm messed up and, and I'm not as I as we said before I just want to be very clear like I'm, I'm no kind you know I, I don't think we're all beginners here it's not I mean as, as far as they're concerned it is uh we're just so far out into heresy land I mean you can <laughs> you can do a syncretic thing if you want you can talk about the hesychast monks from orthodoxy yeah. and their mantra you know, uh, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, the sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, the sinner, and and sitting in the prayer closet for hours at a time and stuff. But uh, it, it's from their end, it's not reconcilable. From our end, since anything in words is is ultimately conventional and not satisfactory for the ultimate, we can really reconcile basically any of the traditions. But from their side, it's never. Yeah, it's not that's. I mean, that's kind of how. I mean, that that yeah seems how it is essentially, to me. Um. But anyway, but that doesn't, but none of that means, I mean, that's the thing is like, okay, so you have, you have people who sort of recognize that truth is everywhere at all times and speaking, you know, it's sort of like revealing itself at all times. And that if you um, engage with the kind of calm, focused attention and, and let your ego dissolve, that you can, that you can commune with it, that you can, you can reach a state of, you know, not being separate from that. Like, I to me from my perspective, it's like whoa, 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 that that sounds that sounds just about right, you know. And so then a place where people that's facilitating that, supporting that, that's a that's a kind of physical anchor for people who are doing that. I mean, of course they're doing other things as well, but but like okay, well then that's a very powerful place. Yeah, exactly. Or are you there? Do you, 
I'm here, man. Uh, that brings up a, a question about, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier about respecting these Buddhist sites in India or wherever, all the way 10,000 miles away in North America, which is my home. Um, that brings up an interesting question about what about sacred spaces here in America? Because uh, that's, you know, there are nice places. There are places that have become sacred, um, like the nice church that Storm was visiting, mm-hmm. for example. But I think, you know, the more I've traveled a lot, and the more I travel around the world, it's like this is the most barren place I've ever been in terms of sacred spaces, um, the United well, States. Well, it's a weird thing. I think, I don't know that um, we. I think first of all, a lot of it is is stuff that like just the knowledge was lost with the with the Native yes. Americans, you know, is, yes. is part of it. And then another big part of it is uh, so much like, okay, let's say hypothetically there was someone you know someone attuned or someone you know who knew the traditions, you know, that was able to point these things out. It's just it would be like it would be you know without a doubt the spot would be fucking paved over. Uh, intersection with you know eight lanes in each direction yep. and like you know what I mean and then no one would yep. give a shit it would just be like another you know and 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 even if and then even hypothetically hypothetically if uh if well, let's say like you could convince someone like well okay I understand this is you know the, we got this office building on what's actually a really powerful really important space so can we take this office building and can we like make it into I don't know a temple or something whatever like okay you somehow you get the permission somehow you get the permits blah 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 like you, no one would care no one would go it would be just a desolate like because you know no one no one would take time out of their day i was thinking about this because it's you know it's holy week now for the orthodox and and for the and for the catholics and everything and like in a peasant society in a in a, in a pre-modern society like i mean because they have all these i mean on the books and i think typically often in general they'll have these services and it used to be like you know okay if you're a farmer or whatever you know you 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 could take time off you can get someone to help or to put you know put the tools down for a couple of days and you go and you do the services and and that's how the the whole kind of framework is designed now it's like if you want to go to these things i mean it's basically impossible unless they schedule them at night and even then it's just you know what i'm saying like like the rhythm of life is just completely divorced from religious practice yeah, yeah, you took the words right out of my mouth, man. And and, and it's um, the, to me actually the interesting question is not even like how could that be different on a macro scale. Although I would love to find a way to make that possible, um, but it leaves us in the you know the with the practical question of what do we do uh, given that things are the way they are, um, and that goes back to what we were saying earlier about building your own little sacred space and and trying to create something like that in your own life and and potentially even sharing it with other people i mean there are cool little churches cool little temples in fact um and not all of them are reek of you know pop zen or whatever oh we've got a little hang on just a second guys no worries. A... <laughs> uh no i yeah, sorry I... Yep. Yeah, little three-year-old future Bodhi <laughs> Continue. Oh no, I just—I mean, I heard uh, Swami. Or not heard. Well, I saw it. Swami Apu mentioned like he discovered there was a um, a, uh, a I think he said a little Thai temple, kind of like you know half an hour away in the middle of nowhere where he is. Which okay, I mean, it could, I could put on my kind of right-wing reactionary you know whatever hat and be like why are there thai people in the middle of it but it's like okay but it's nice that there's this temple you know what i mean like it it's uh at least there's that 
Yeah, that's right. And there are Westerners who have made really cool, um, you know, like the the teacher that I follow has made a, a monastery in Southern California in the desert where people, lay people can go and, and meditate there for a week or two weeks or something. And there are full-time monks that live there and they're creating their own sacred space out in the desert. Yeah, you know? so Kohlrabi, I guess, joined a little ladies asking if we're talking about natural grottos and such. Yeah, we, we actually spent quite a bit of time talking about that um, earlier in the stream if you want to go back and listen once we're... Once we're done, um, and he also he says it's true. Cooper Christian countries have little icon boxes randomly placed or little statues around. Yeah, not. I mean, you know, historically, I mean, that's that kind of stuff's all over Europe. Um, and oh and, yeah, yeah. You know what? Um, sorry, finish your point. But I no, no, that was to done. Say on that. Yeah, you know that was that's what I was going to say. Um, what we were, what you were saying, uh, your very accurate description of uh, sacred spaces or the lack thereof, in fact, the impossibility thereof in most of um, the United States make highlights the tragedy again of something like uh, Notre Dame burning, right? Yeah. Because, and and this really gets at the heart of the the difference between secular-minded materialists and people with um, people with a better understanding of reality, which is the arguments when the arguments from oh it's old or the arguments from it's um, it has you know archaeological value or artistic value and everything those arguments are true and they are supporting arguments as to why that's an important building but they're totally vulnerable to these uh counter arguments from like radical leftists who are saying you know like good let's burn it all down because the the history is bad you know it's evil and france is an evil country or whatever i mean those arguments are stupid and they're false but there's no real defense against them if your only argument is it's good because it's old it's good because it's um you know uh has nice art in it or something like yeah, that yeah and you need, you need a transcendental argument exactly yes, that's right it's good because it is sacred it is actually sacred and sacred things are real and they do represent much more than just the physical form of the art that they're in and that's why the building the burning of the building is much more of a tragedy than we lost some nice looking wood pieces I I think it sounds like we have some, very well said. Yeah, that's a great. I think that's a great place to end it. Um, thank you so much. I mean, unless you guys have something else you want to toss in there, I, that's totally cool. But with me, but I think that that just about sums it up as far as I'm concerned. Absolutely. Cool. Well, uh, thank you so much. Sorry we started a bit late because we had some technical difficulties, but um, I hope this has been enjoyable. Thank everybody who's participating and joining in and listening. And thanks. So oh, much I to want you guys. to. Yeah, please. Yeah, I want to. I just want to toss something in at the end. Um, any small merit that we have generated <laughs> yes, by this discussion that. nice, is, yes. is dedicated to our friend Kagyu, who is yes. here in spirit and did everything um, in his power to be here with us. And we unfortunately had to cut him for technical reasons. But um, yeah, this one's for Kagyu. And if so. anyone knows how to solve the problem Google Hangouts <laughs> where certain people in the call can't hear each other, if anyone knows DM. how to fix that, yeah, please, please. So send one of us a DM if you're having if you if you know like what is up with Google Hangouts and what this problem is. All right. Thanks everybody. We'll talk to you later. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Bye.